Oh, our God, would you, the living author of this living word, come and speak now to your servants? Come and instruct us in Christ. Teach us of our Savior and of the salvation that is ours in Him and strengthen us for hope that perseveres. We pray this in His precious name. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the teaching of our adoption in Christ. God has adopted us. Glorious truth that forms part of the heart of Romans 8. That the Spirit has brought us into union with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that in Him we are made sons. We are adopted as sons in, in the Son. Um, and, and last week in particular, we looked at how this means that, 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 that we are made co-heirs with Christ. That everything that God promised to give Christ, all the rich inheritance that God promised to give His Son, we receive. Because we're in the Son. How could we not receive what Christ Himself receives if we're sons in His adoption? God has made us sons, not as second-rate sons, but sons in Christ. Sons in Him who have the very same relationship with God as our Lord Jesus, the Son. We also saw last week that because we are brought into this relation, this union with Christ, become co-heirs with Him, right now that means suffering with Him. And that if we don't suffer with Him, we won't receive that glorious inheritance with Him. You are just as much God's Son as Jesus Himself, and so your life is going to follow the same pattern of His life, of suffering and then reward and glory. And Paul goes on now. He's continuing to expand on that same theme of our, of our sonship and our adoption. And he's looking at our, at our suffering as sons. And he's looking at the glory that's coming. Uh, but, but now he's sort of taking, taking the, 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 the view where he's, he's zooming way out. And he's, he's taking the, the biggest possible view. Sort of the view from outer space. A cosmic view. Uh, where he, you see, we see some of the, the, the massive glories of our, of our adoption as sons in Christ. And, and he's showing us these things, brothers and sisters, because we need to know that it's worth it. He's just said you're going to suffer with Christ if you're going to be glorified with Christ. So the, the, question, right, the question that we naturally have, hearing that we're going to suffer with Christ in union with Christ is, well, is it worth it to suffer with Him? Is the reward at the end worth it? Or would it be better to live now um, without Christ and, and not endure the suffering that would be with Christ? Think of the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness, dreaming of going back to being slaves in Egypt. Right? They're not sure... This is worth it. The inheritance ahead of them seems far away. Right now, they're in the desert. Uh, Egypt sure was nice. We had, we had melons. We had garlic. Right? Not this manna day after day after day. And they think, oh, it was better there. Before we were adopted as sons. But brothers and sisters, Paul, Paul's point, uh, our Lord's point in this text, is to show us it's worth it. It's worth every inch of it, every, every bit of it. It's, it. We need that. We need that hope, loved ones, and that conviction that it is worth it. Deep down, right in our guts, that yes, 
it is worth it. We need that, what Hebrews calls the sure and steady anchor of the soul. That, that, that hope that's your ballast through the storms of this life. And this hope comes through knowing about our adoption and the reward that's ahead of us. And we know this through the, the spirit of adoption who's given this hope to us. Let's look at this together. Uh, Paul begins in verse 18 by telling us that the glory ahead of us is worth more than our present sufferings, far more, that they're not worth comparing with the present sufferings, with, with that glory. He says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul is saying, stack it up, think about it. Compare one, compare the other, and you'll see it's not worth comparing the suffering now to the glory that is, that is coming. Um, I remember uh, uh, thinking through how, how, to, how to illustrate this. I was, uh, there was a time when I was playing soccer in high school when our team, uh, we had had a terrible game, a really sloppy, lazy game. And the other team, uh, the other team uh, uh, won, won by a lot. Um, and, uh, and after that game, the coach took us uh, back to the next day's practice. And that was the worst practice I've ever been through. I mean, we ran and ran and ran and ran. With this suicides, laps around the thing, um, uh, just lots and lots and lots of running. And, and, and the coach had us shout out in unison together uh, the things we were going to do differently. I will communicate with my teammates. I will attack the ball. I will control the play. Right? These things have been seared into my mind from that one practice uh, uh, where, we, where we did this over and over and over. And it was a turning point for us. And, and from then on, we actually did, we did much better. Uh, and the team went on to win the championship uh, for the state. Um, and, and, and so once we won that championship... Looking back, every one of us on that team would have said, oh, I would have done ten practices like that to win this championship. It's worth it. It's worth it. We need to see our suffering in the light of glory. We need to put it on the right set of scales. Um, one commentator writes about this, really really puts it so well. He says, we must weigh suffering in the balance with the glory that is the final state of every believer. And so weighty, so transcendentally wonderful is this glory that the suffering flies in the air as if it had no weight at all. Let's this, uh, let, let this sink in. Um, no weight at all to the suffering. That, really? Um, Paul? Paul knows suffering. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-29, this. He says, I received far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless 
night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Right, so, so Paul's not saying, oh, the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. Because what he experienced was so insignificant. You heard, you heard the list that he writes about his suffering. Um, perhaps you can sympathize with some of the things in that list. Sleepless nights. Right? Knowing, knowing want, knowing difficulty, knowing, knowing uh, opposition from others, hatred of others, uh, uh, suffering, physical pain, sickness. We can't say, Paul, you're just saying that because you had it so easy. I know, brothers and sisters, as he says, who is weak and he is not weak. And yet he says, with total conviction, they're not worth comparing with what's coming. Um, the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, has a line in it which expresses this same idea so well. Uh, it's a line that uh, several times I've been asked, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, we sing this line, what does it mean? Um, where it says, uh, It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. If I had to die seven times, or seven, just a, you know, a nice, full, perfect number, right? If I had to die... Over and over and over, ah, oh, heaven would still be worth the journey, getting there. Um, that's, what, that's what Paul's saying. And he is actually, it's even bigger than this, loved ones, because Paul's not just speaking autobiographically about, about his personal sufferings and putting that in the balance with the glory that's coming and it's not worth comparing. But he is putting on the scale here all the suffering of God's people for all time. He says, uh, he calls them the sufferings of this present time, right? All that the church is suffering in union with Christ until he returns. Think, think about that. All that the church has suffered from the mundane sicknesses and griefs and frustrations of life in union with Christ to, 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 the, to, 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 the, to the martyrdom and the persecution, all of it. Paul is putting it all on the scales on one side. And on the other side, he puts the glory that's coming. And he says, it's not worth comparing. Loved ones, learn to put your suffering on the right set of scales. Too often, we are tempted to put it on the wrong set of scales. To put it on the scales of, of our here and now experience. Well, my bad days are outnumbering my good days. And, right? That's the scale we use. Or um, we put it on the scales of what our culture tells us to expect from life. Right? Easy, comfortable, uh, right? everything you could want and enjoy. Good health and few disturbances. Right? With those expectations, with that set of scales, oh, yeah, the suffering's worth comparing with that. Um, because that doesn't balance out against us. When you, when you weigh your suffering against these other things, put it on the wrong set of scales, it is heavy. It is weighty. Crushing. So put it on the right set of scales. Weighed against all that is ours in Christ and glory. It weighs nothing. Nothing. 
That's Paul's point. And then he gives us two facets of the glory that's coming to encourage us in this, that it really does weigh nothing in comparison with this glory. Um, the first facet of the glory that's coming, I say facets very intentionally. Uh, I think of facets on a diamond. They're, they're not, it's, it's one diamond, right? Our reward is one reward in Christ himself. It's got all these facets to it. And he's showing us two. They're connected with each other, as we'll see. Um, uh, here, here's the first Verses 19-22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together and the pains of childbirth until now. Notice uh, something crucial to what's going on here in Paul, Paul's reasoning. Um, he takes two themes and he, and he, and he, and he weaves them together. Uh, the theme of adoption and the theme of creation's subjection to the curse. In verse 19, he says that the creation is eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Then in verse 21, he says the creation will be set free into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's a fascinating thing for him to say. The creation is waiting for our adoption? The creation is eagerly waiting for, 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 for that. Well, you might think he'd say the creation is eagerly waiting for, for when Christ comes back and restores the creation. But Paul says the creation is waiting for our adoption as sons. Why? It's because of this relationship that exists between man and the creation. Think, think, think of this. We see this in Scripture. Psalm 8 um, gives us a, a wonderful picture of this, how God made Adam, made man, in his image, to be king over this creation, caring for it, stewarding it for God's glory, um, to reflect God's glory back to him. Um, Psalm 8 talks about this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Man's the king over the creation. That's the way God sets it up. And then in... Genesis chapter 3, as we saw earlier, when Adam sins, um, he, he drags the whole creation down with him. Right? Even as a, a king's failure drags his kingdom down, so Adam, God's king under God, but, but, but there to be ruling over this creation, as he sins, the whole creation is dragged into the consequences of it. Um, we read the curse there in Genesis three seventeen to 19. Because, Adam, God speaking to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground 
because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. So Adam's, Adam's sin doesn't only rupture his relationship with God, but as a, another fallout of that ruptured relationship with God, it, it drags the whole creation into slavery and, and, and that condemnation heading that we looked at earlier in Romans chapter 8. Um, as a result of this curse uh, on, on us for our sin, the world's been made into a ruin, still full of beauty, still full of stunning uh, and amazing things that will take your breath away. Uh, but it's a ruin of something that was so much, much better. And it's made it, made, made it a place of futility and frustration. Uh, we see this in the law of entropy, where things fall apart. Things tend towards disorder. Um, uh, things tend toward breakdown. The universe looks like this runaway train heading towards, unstoppably towards chaos, death, and final coldness. No more warmth or heat. And, and Paul is saying that's, that's what sin has done to the world. Made it subject, enslaved to futility, frustration, bondage to corruption. So that, that's, what, that's what our sin has done to the world. So when God comes to save us, from our sin, what's he going to do with the world? Throw it in the incinerator? Start completely over with a new one? Verse 20 tells us that God originally subjected the whole creation to futility in hope. In hope of something else. He, he, he put the curse for our sin on the world in hope, confident hope, that one day a new Adam would come, a new son adopted, a new son made his, set as king over this creation, who would restore it and bring no more curse, but blessing, not only on his people, but on the whole universe and make it new, make it all new into a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. That's the, that's the stunning cosmic scale promise of this chapter, verse 20, that God is going to, just as He is going to restore and resurrect His people, He is going to restore this creation into a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. Um, and so Paul pictures for us here this very uh, poetic language, speaking about the creation anthropomorphically. Uh, the creation is not sentient, or it doesn't have consciousness, but he speaks of it as, as though it does, um, with, with the kind of a, a human personality to it. He says the world itself is, is eagerly waiting. The, the, the word there kind of has the sense of the world, the world is standing on tiptoe to see our adoption as sons. Because in our adoption, the world itself is restored by God's plan. So the, so the world is, is, is longing for this. And in the midst of it, the world is, is, is groaning in, in the suffering that's going on. Um, verse 22 describes this, this, uh, this process the creation's going through, like childbirth. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's the perfect metaphor because the pains of a, of a woman in childbirth 
are the promise of what's coming. The, the, the very pain the woman experiences in childbirth is, is the promise of what's coming. It, it's the promise that, that the process is, is, is going according to plan uh, and that, that the baby will soon be there and the suffering of the childbirth will, be, uh, will fade, and, fade away in the joy of, of new life. And so, as the creation itself here is, is suffering, looking forward to what's coming, the Holy Spirit himself is already at work and is going to bring that new creation to, to pass um, uh, in, in the last day. And that new creation, brothers and sisters, is such a, an important part of our hope. That because the curse that we're still experiencing the residue of, because it's still on this world, it, it, it is so much the cause of our frustration and our, our suffering. Things still break down after you become a Christian. Things are still futile feeling after you become a Christian. Right? This world and all its brokenness still surrounds us in the Christian life. And so we need this counter-hope that one day, all of it will be made right. We need to keep that in our hearts. Those words in Revelation 21, which are so precious, which picture this for us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Dear brothers and sisters, that's what's in the scales. There's suffering on one side and the entire universe made new on the other. There's a second facet to the glory that Paul shows us. Connected with the first, but distinct as well. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul now shifts from what God is going to do in the whole creation to what he's going to do in us as his sons. And he focuses on our resurrection by the power of the Spirit. First, he, he talks about how we've received, he says we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits are part of the harvest, right? They're the first fruit that comes and it tells you that the rest of the harvest is going to come too. Uh, and this is, this is the picture Paul, Paul uses for, for what the Spirit is, who the Spirit is, and what he's doing. Um, the, the Spirit is, is, is seen in, in Scripture as the one who's going to bring to pass the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of God, our, our, our full salvation in its fullest scope. Um, throughout Scripture, the Spirit is associated with the end, when God makes all things new. We see this in 
the very important prophecy of Joel chapter 2, where God says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Spirit, end of the world. Spirit, new creation. Right? That's, that's what's held together in Joel 2. Um, and, and now Paul says, Pentecost has happened. The Spirit has come. We haven't seen the new creation made yet, but we have the first fruits of the, of the end when all things are made new. So the first fruits of the Spirit refers to this great end-time harvest of our full salvation when the new creation comes consummately. And so Paul, Paul is encouraging us. He's saying it's, it's, it, that has already started because the Spirit Himself is in you. To put it in, in, in the simplest terms that I can, brothers and sisters, I would put it like this. The Spirit in you is the new heavens and new earth already starting in you. And the promise that you yourself will be made new in the new heavens and new earth. This, the Spirit in you is the beginning of the same eternal resurrection life by which God is going to restore all things. It's the beginning of that. And it's also the promise that God Himself will bring that all to its fruition. The Spirit in you, therefore, is the already and the not yet. So Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and and then, he, then, he, then he focuses on a particular aspect of this. He, and he says it's, um, the, the, the Spirit is, is going to bring about our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Um, Paul's talking about our resurrection, our physical, bodily resurrection um, when, he, when he talks about this. And for him, this is the, this is the crowning moment of salvation. Right? As sweet, precious, and wonderful as having sins forgiven is. As sweet and, and wonderful as it is to be set free from the power of sin. Paul sees something that is even sweeter and more wonderful that those things lead to. And that is that crowning moment when Christ returns and raises him up from the dead and makes him whole, body and soul, again. Paul, Paul fixates on this. He says, this is the hope in which we were saved. In verse 24. The resurrection body. Um, why is it a big deal? Well, for one thing, of course, it'll be, it'll be wonderful to have a body that is not subject to decay and, and aging and, and, and the ravages of time. Uh, a body that does not wear out or get uh, exhausted. Uh, a body that is, that is um, uh, free from pain and free from the fear of death. Those things will be wonderful and, and, and sweet. Uh, but, but, but above all, I think for Paul, it's precious to him that he's going to have a new body because then he will be fully conformed to Jesus Christ. His adoption will be complete. Adoption is to be made a son in Christ, conformed to Christ. And that's going to be complete when, like him, we stand physically with him in glory and we have communion with him forever and ever. 
Uh, we will be made able to live forever to the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. So this is the twofold promise of our adoption that Paul presents us with. The, the creation restored and us restored as well as sons resurrected in Christ. And this is what God will accomplish through the power of the Spirit. Loved ones, these are um, some of the highest, or whatever you want to say, deepest, biggest um, truths of the Christian life and the gospel. Um, the, the, the scope here is, is staggering. Um, whole creation made new. Someday our very bodies made alive forever in union with Christ. Um, and because it's so good, it can almost seem too good to be true and, and distant. Uh, tomorrow I've got to get up and I've got a hard day. Um, I'm going to wake up with the same aches and pains and the same struggles and the same circumstances, the same boss at work, the same uh, whatever. Um, Pastor, all this stuff about new creation, it sounds great, but you know what? I'd like a new medication. I'd like a new promotion. I'd like a new paycheck. That, that, would, be, that, would, that would really make a difference. right? Something a little closer to home. Um, but, but brothers and sisters, though, those things are so small in the scales. Only the hope that we're given in the gospel is big enough and good enough to, 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 to make up for, 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 for the suffering that we go through. Um, n- n- nothing else, none of these other things will suffice to restore us and make us whole again in Christ. It is, it is these things that we need. We need the big things, the glorious truths of the gospel that are ours in Christ. And we've been given the spirit of adoption, and part of his work is to continue to strengthen us in hope. Um, we're hoping for things unseen, but we've got the down payment, the Spirit Himself in us, the first installment of the glory that's coming, the guarantee of the glory that's coming, and so we're enabled to hope. Verse 25 says, If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So keep shoveling the coal of God's promises under your heart's fire, of hope. Keep, keep, keep hanging on to these things and hoping in these things. Keep the right scales in your mind, dear ones, um, and, and weigh your life's groanings on the proper set of scales with, with, with the glory that is yours, the weight of glory that is yours, because you've been adopted. You're a son of God, and you look forward to the new creation itself and your own resurrection, and you will be there in glory with God. And all the memory of grief will be washed away and you will be with him in precious, uninterrupted fellowship forever in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do not deserve such a gospel. We thank you for your glorious free grace to us in Christ. And we pray that you would indeed strengthen our hope that we might persevere with joy, eagerly waiting even as we're groaning uh, for, for, for our redemption, for our adoption. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our hymn of response is, Be Thou 